Welcome to Health Hackers. I'm recording this introduction separately from the interview you're about to watch or listen to, and here's why. If you subscribe to the Health Hackers YouTube channel or you follow at Health Hackers on Instagram, you will have seen that I have been reviewing a personalized nutrition program called Zoe. I released part one of two Health Hackers videos about my experience last month, and as part of my review process, I interviewed Professor Tim Spector. He's the scientific co-founder of Zoe, as well as an epidemiologist from King's College London and gut microbiome expert. Tim is also an author and previous Health Hackers guest. Check out episode two back in the early days. Now, when we had a chat about the Zoe program, this was in February, Tim was kind enough to stay on the video call so I could ask him more about his research into people's individual responses to foods. And if one size doesn't fit all nutritionally, can we make any generalized dietary advice? A quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear or see on Health Hackers should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score, always talk to your health provider. I hope you enjoy this interview, and if you want to see the rest of it, watch my video review of Zoe. I'll add the link in the summary text. When you previously appeared on Health Hackers, we spoke about your book, The Diet Myth. Since then, you've released Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong. What would you say are the biggest, the main mistakes we've been making in our attempts to get healthy and lose weight over the last few decades? Well, the book has 23 of those, and uh, we haven't got time to discuss them all, sadly. The big ones uh, probably include the calorie myth. I think this is the one that, in a way, binds a lot of the other myths together. The idea that you can really quantify food and whether it's good or not by its calorie count. So that's what people look at in a shop when they go in and they see it. You know, they buy in a supermarket something and it's got this low calories. They say, okay, I'll buy that. That's good. That is telling you nothing about the quality of the product, nothing about the composition, nothing about how it's going to affect your body. And it misleads people because we, the other part of the myth is that uh, you can actually measure this accurately and that, you know, women need 2,000 calories, men 2,500. And if you stick to that, you'll lose weight. And Virtually everyone on the planet is probably in the rich world has, has tried something like that and found that it fails miserably, partly because you can't measure it properly. Uh, you can't measure what goes in, the labels are wrong, and uh, same foods in different formats have different calories. So whether your nuts are ground up or whole makes a 30% difference to the calories, whether hummus is chickpeas or it's in a puree, completely different. And then, of course, you've got the other side of the equation is when uh, you're burning off your calories, the so-called metabolic rate, that varies hugely between people. And so this is why these uh, Apple Fitbit watches, et cetera, are very misleading because people think I've been to the gym and burnt off my you know, 400 calories. And of course, they haven't at all or, you know, everyone has a complete unique metabolism. So you can't measure it properly. You can't measure the output properly. So you don't know whether this 2000 is good for you or not. And then of course, the, the final one is that all calories are equal and therefore you should believe what's on the packet. So we've talked about composition, but even the same calorie food as we found in the PREDICT study, when we gave people identical 
uh, muffin with sugar and fat in it, mainly sugar, um, a quarter of people got a sugar dip. And they're eating the same calorie, but those people who got a sugar dip actually ate more in the next 24 hours. So, it, you know, a calorie is a calorie is rubbish because this also means that ultra processed food uh, of the same calories will make you hungrier and eat more and therefore consume more calories. So I think the whole, and all of that comes under that bin of calories misleading us. So we need to throw them out and uh, just have it as a very rough guide. You know, if you if you have to pick something and it's in a, in a plain wrapper and you don't know what you're eating, it's a, it's a clue to if it's high calories, it's might be a clue to, to avoid it. But other than that, it's uh, much better things to start thinking about when you're eating about food. Let's focus on quality. And of course, behind this calorie scam, the food and diet industry have been leading it. And the more they've put calories into the, onto the labels, the more they've sold. And low calorie products, snacks, etc. So I think that's my number one. Would you say that for people who have had success with calorie counting and weight loss, that that was because they were opting for a lower fat diet, which is better for their unique metabolism because this is all individually based. Yes, I mean, they could have got lucky. Um, so I'm not saying nobody can lose weight on a, on a low calorie diet. And if it's extreme enough, you will do. But generally the body resets itself after about six weeks and um, any effects get lost. So yeah, a calorie controlled diet, if you go on a thousand calorie diet tomorrow, you will lose weight. I'm talking long-term um, and healthy. And these, you know, these are the important things because there's unless you you're going to a party and can't get an address there's no point in going on a on a, on a few weeks diet that's going to obviously often rebound and make it worse so um that's the short term and the long term so yes some people can pick a diet that that is right for them uh most people can't feel that instinctively and my worry about um low calorie diets are that they don't reflect the quality of foods that means that you long term if you went for low calorie foods and most people do that with highly processed foods uh, that have sweeteners and uh, artificial ingredients long term they cause problems for your gut microbes so you often end up with less diversity and causing yourself long term problems but I take your point, you know, you can be lucky and, and get a diet that does suit you, but if it's a diet like that, it's likely to be restrictive and not sustainable long-term. And during the three years you've been working on the PREDICT studies that you started, described as the largest investigation of nutrition and the microbiome of its kind, what have been some of your most surprising standout findings? I guess the... Uh, in the various order of things, uh, the, the eightfold difference between individuals uh, given the same food in their blood responses. Nobody expected that big a difference between people. And that was a shock. The second shock was seeing identical twins having a different food response. 
The third one was that of all the factors that determined your metabolic response to food, what was, appeared on the food label was only a very small component. So all these things about macronutrients, uh, you know, the fat content, the carbohydrate content, sugar content, uh, really played a very small role in that. And that was important. And the other, the other one, I guess, was that genetics um, was such a, a small player in this. Uh, particularly upset me because I was a geneticist and, uh, you know, I love studying twins. And so I've been for 25 years telling people how important genes are. So it was a bit of a shock to me that, you know, in this unique, our own response to food, genes really play a, a trivial role. And so we should be ignoring all those uh, tests and companies that, that tell us otherwise. When you mentioned that eightfold difference in blood glucose responses to the same food, what's the most significant driver of that difference in individual response? Well, what we found it was it, there wasn't one single thing. It was actually lots of different factors. Um, certainly the microbiome played a, a big factor. And we know that even in identical twins, they have very different um, community of microbes that you know, they're, in fact, their identical genes doesn't seem to make much difference. Um, but it was things like the time of day, um, how much sleep you had the night before, how, whether you exercise before or after your meal, uh, what you ate the day before. Um, interestingly, whether you had a high carb meal the day before often had a follow on effect. Um, so uh, plus things like differences with age, um, male female differences, and you put this all together and it, only with big computers can you actually sort of work this out. It's not something you could just go home and, and work out yourself. So I think we're still learning a lot about why we respond differently to, to foods and at different times. Um, and we know that fasting intervals are also important. That's, that's becoming a big thing in, in nutrition as well, you know, this long overnight fast. So multiple factors, they, they, were, they were the key. But we're now collecting most of these and putting them into the, the algorithm. What was the follow-on effect of having a high-carb meal the day before? Basically, it meant you, you responded worse to your breakfast and lunch uh, the next day. So you had a higher sugar peak. It's all about maintaining a, a steady approach to nutrition um, and realizing you do pay for uh, some meals you might have uh, later. Uh, your body somehow recognises, keeps a tab on you and, uh, and you have to pay the penalty for it later. We hear a lot about what we eat, but how does when we eat affect our biological response to foods? Did you find some people do better when they eat later in the day? Yeah, I mean, one of the myths is that we should eat all our meals early in the day and have, always have breakfast. And in my studies, we, we, we looked at breakfast per se and found that there was no evidence for that at all. And actually it's quite safe and often very healthy to skip breakfast if you feel like it, as long as you, you have a long fasting period. But uh, in the PREDICT study, we actually looked at people uh, to see, we gave them the muffins at identical muffins at different times of the day. And I, I took part in this experiment as well. But it turns out that most people uh, do have a, a smaller sugar response to muffins in the morning than in the evening. So the adage that we should eat in the mornings is generally true, but 
what was interesting is that about a quarter of people, it was the opposite. Uh, and I was one of those people that uh, metabolized my muffin better in the evening than I did in the morning. So I'm better off skipping my breakfast and having a much bigger evening meal. And as you age over the age of 50, uh, we do see this shift towards people metabolizing better later in the day. You know, this is all new, fascinating data, just showing how complicated it all is and how these simple, you know, one size fits all rules was just turning out to be nonsense. And what impact does exercise have? Did you find that more people found it better to exercise before eating or after eating in terms of how their body then responded to food? We did look at this and most people's sugar responses were reduced after exercise. I think most people, it was they would eat their muffin, then they would uh, exercise, which is either you know, brisk walking or cycling or whatever to work. And because you don't get a peak for usually 30 or 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. So if they did some exercise in that time, most people benefited from it, but one in four people got worse. For one in four people, you'd say, do it the other way around. Do your exercise before you eat rather than after you eat. I noticed in the coverage of the PREDICT findings uh, fairly recently, it mentioned that some animal products, eggs, fish and yogurt, correlated with good bugs, while some processed meats such as bacon and sausages were more strongly linked with bad bugs. That's a quote. Where did unprocessed meat rank? Unprocessed meat uh, was neutral. We didn't find many associations with those uh, 30 good and bad bugs with uh, high quality uh, unprocessed meat. We ideally probably need a, another few thousand people who uh, can, can test this, this theory out. But at the moment, that first study really just showed that eating highly processed foods, whether it's from animals or plants, was associated with bad bugs. And so we didn't get this, you know, the idea that all, plants are always good and animals are always bad didn't come out. It did seem to be related to the processing of the food rather than the, the actual categorization. So this was the first time anyone's shown that uh, difference. And, and similarly, so we had the bad ones, but also the good ones. Uh, there was you know, suggestion that cheeses and things like this uh, and yogurts uh, were also associated with, with good bugs as well. And while I know uh, your findings have suggested that one size does not fit all and that nutrition should be personalised, is there any capacity for making generalisations about healthy eating? I know you mentioned there perhaps avoiding processed foods. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, so as well as processed foods, we're talking about artificial sweeteners, diet drinks, and I think uh, snacking, I think is another one that people assume that you can eat snack healthily, increasing evidence that the less meal episodes you have, the better. And doing things to improve your gut microbes. So increasing the diversity of the microbes by increasing the diversity of the plants you eat. My rule of thumb is try and get 30 different plants in you every week, which you can do with nuts and seeds, sprinkling on things quite easily and use your imagination to try and pick some new ones every week, plus regular fermented foods. So a small shot, you don't have to have lots of it, but small amounts regularly, either of a good quality cheese, yogurt, 
kefir, kimchi, kombucha, kraut, the four Ks, they all work. And when you are picking your foods, particularly your plants, try and get ones that are high in these chemical polyphenols. So brightly colored foods, things like berries, nuts, and strangely things like dark chocolate and uh, red wine also have these marvelous chemicals and a, a good excuse if you want to drink those and eat those. Tim, this has been great to be able to pick your brains. I know how busy you are, uh, but one thing I want to flag um, that we didn't mention is your ongoing research around COVID symptoms and the spread of the virus using an app. How can people in the US and the UK help with this and get involved? Interesting, we were doing the PREDICT studies on, and we were building up more data on twins when COVID broke in March last year. And we got together with the company Zoe to reposition the nutrition app into a COVID symptom study app. And we were about the first in the world to get this running and had four and a half million people downloaded the app and told us about their COVID symptoms or lack of symptoms, both in uh, the UK, the US and Sweden. And we still have about one and a half million people logging daily, nearly a year on. And so it's an amazing database. And we've learned so much about COVID symptoms. We discovered loss of smell and taste uh, was uh, a crucial symptom. We're now looking at things like rash, COVID toes and COVID tongue and all kinds of stuff we would never have known before, exploring long COVID. And we've got some data coming out soon about diet and COVID. So 2 million people who use the app downloaded a questionnaire about diet. And we now know how COVID affected people's diet during the lockdowns in the US and the UK in sp spring last year, and how many people got worse, many people actually got better, they improved their health. And we've got some data coming out about how key a good diet is in preventing COVID. So this is unique data on 2 million people. So what we're seeing is that probably the most important thing you can do for your health is to improve your diet. And unlike your genes, it's very easy to, to just get out there and, and change it. And as well as improving your weight and metabolism, you can make a huge impact and it reduce your chances of having a problem with COVID and other uh, problems of immunity. Everybody listening, I will put relevant links to um, the Zoe app and Tim's social media in the summary text that goes with this video and podcast. Tim, thank you so much. That is it, Health Hackers viewers and listeners. Thank you for being with us. And don't forget to see the summary text for those links. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe for regular videos or write me a nice comment if you're feeling in a good mood. And if you're watching or listening to this through Facebook, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, you can opt to follow the show there too. Thanks again, bye-bye.